today on More Than a Test, we have Dr. Jack Mostow. Uh, I'm pretty excited about this one. Jack Mostow is a personal hero of mine. His research has been a huge foundation for Amira. He is an incredible human. He's done so much in both the learning space, robotics space, and linguistics. All the things that you think would never tie together, he has found a way to really find some solutions for students and for helping more people learn to read. Dr. Mostow, thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome. This should be fun. Yeah, I'm really excited. I have to tell you that um, at Amira, it, there's a little bit of a buzz going around that you're going to be on the podcast because we're all pretty big fans of yours. And it was a little bit like fangirling this week, knowing that you were going to be on. Oh, great. I wasn't nervous before you said that. <laughs> well, don't be nervous because most of what we're so, you know, so inspired by and why we think about you so much is, is your incredible research around Project Listen. And so for the people who are not, you know, your fangirls, <laughs> uh, talk a little bit about Project Listen and, um, you know, like the roots of Project Listen and, and, and uh, you know, everything about Project Listen, I guess. Child reads, computer listens. <laughs> you said uh, a little bit about and four words is the shortest I can make it. That's true. But I would say, you know, as Amira, we've been a company for like four years, you know, pro, uh, child reads and robot listens, you way before us, way before we, we could start doing this, you, you had this idea. So tell me a little bit about the, the foundation of Project Listen. Oh, boy. I was, uh, was going to say I was born in the house my father built. That's not quite true. Uh, I did grow up in the house that he designed. Um, so let me go way back. I first heard of AI when I was a freshman in college. Uh, back then, it was not a household term. And I happened to take a survey course, SOCSI 150, Social Science 150, Perspectives on American Education, which was a series of guest lectures by various professors. And I used it as an excuse to read up about AI. Um, and the project I did for that course was called Potential Applications of Artificial Intelligence to Education. And it was an hour-long presentation to my section. And I started by saying, well, if you want to uh, know or guess what might be potential applications of AI, uh, you have to look at where the field is and where it's going. And I proceeded to talk about that for 59 minutes. And in the final 60 seconds, I said, and here's how it might apply to education. And I got away with it. Um, one of the people I interviewed for that, possibly the only one, was Jaime Carbonell Sr., who was uh, the late father of the uh, Jaime Carbonell Jr. at Carnegie Mellon. Unfortunately, both of them uh, died untimely deaths. Um, and uh, Jaime Carbonell Sr. developed an intelligent tutor for South American uh, geography because uh, they were from Uruguay, uh, which was years ahead of its time. I took that course in spring of 1971. Because, you know, right now people are, are kind of pretending like AI is this new phenomenon and it's all of a sudden here. And you're talking about in 1971, you, did, you took this course, you, you gave this presentation and you did this interview um, and tell me a little bit about this product that you were telling me about that was ahead of its time with the South American geography. Well, sure. Scholar was the name of the system. It was not a product. It was uh, research. Okay. It was years, if not decades, ahead of its time for uh, intelligent tutors. Uh, among other things, it had mixed initiative. So the student could ask questions. It wasn't just the tutor asking questions. Um, it had common sense uh, in that if it asked you what's the average temperature uh, of a place and you said uh, 70 degrees and it was actually 69, um, it would respond differently than if you said it was uh, 700 degrees or you know, 54 furlongs or something like that. So, so not even if you were a right or wrong, but how far and how close you were to being right. It had some, some understanding of that. Right. It understood errors that are off by an order of magnitude. or And I, I think it understood where the, the answer is that it has the wrong units. But I could be just uh, predicting. Um, 
Anyway, uh, Dr. Carbonell was kind enough to ask, is it, to answer a bunch of questions from uh, a, uh, I don't know if I watched behind the ears, but the freshman is very uh, uh, patient. And um, odd postscript, which you may or may not want to include in this, uh, I borrowed a friend's tape recorder to record the interview and transcribe it. Years later, when we both graduated, and he was, I think, on the faculty at UC Davis, uh, he ran across the tape recorder, the tape was in it, and he sent it. Um, and I listened to it, and there was uh, Jaime patiently answering wow. uh, these questions from this uh, freshman. At that point, uh, Jaime Carbonell, the interviewee, had died in a car crash, I, th I think, at the age of 38. Wow. Um, and his son uh, was on my thesis committee. Uh, in fact, he was two years younger than I, but he had taken only four years to graduate with his PhD from MIT, and I was taking longer at Carnegie Mellon. Um, so I gave it to him. We got to hear the voice of his long-deceased father uh, and his student. So, wow, that is a really like lovely gift you gave him. And you know, I think one of the things that this kind of ties to in Amira is you know, often we, we record children reading, obviously, you know, um, and we give that recording back to teachers. And now teachers often play it in, uh, you know, multi-tier support system meetings. So meetings where like parents and teachers and interventionists and the principal all get together to help a student. And on a regular basis, we hear from parents like, oh, it's the first time I've actually listened to my fourth grader read. So this gift that like, I, is so beautiful that, you know, I think people underestimate how lovely a recording can be. I can imagine that that meant so much to his son. But that interview meant a lot to you. I mean, this is where you're saying Project Listen started. But you had this this moment where it was like AI and education, you know. And yeah. I, and, and that's what, yeah, that's what started me thinking about it. Okay. Uh, and Scholar, uh, this South American geography tutor, was the first intelligent tutor I uh, came across. Um, after that, I was interested in intelligent tutoring systems. I didn't even know if the that phrase existed yet, but kind of watching from the sidelines. Um, and so fast forward to the, around 1990, um, I knew somebody, uh, actually a number of things converged at, at once. I was a new father. Um, we were living next door to the president of the Middlesex County Literacy, uh, project or something like that. They were, um, tutors to uh, non-English speaking or non-native English speaker adults and uh, reading, teaching to read. Uh, and we were invited to the uh, sort of party at the end, which was a, a, a smorgasbord, a potluck. <laughs> okay. With tables and the, the students were from all over the world. So it was a delicious smorgasbord of very, very dishes. <laughs> Um, my wife and I both sing, and so we were hired or invited to uh, sing. So we sang some uh, American folk songs, you know, like Yankee Doodle and so forth. Um, and I had been thinking about intelligent tutors. I had a uh, friend, Rob Farrell, um, who was working for Belcor, Bell Communications Research, on a tutor to train operators to handle information requests uh, because if they could shave like two seconds off the average time, phone company would save, you know, a couple million bucks a year or something like that. And I thought intelligent tutoring systems is, it's an interesting area, but if I work on that, I want to do something more inspiring than saving phone company uh, running these calls. Um, my parents are no longer living, but my uh, late father, who was a world-famous mathematician, I asked him once, what does it mean for a mathematician to be famous? Because if you ask anybody in the United States to name any mathematician living or dead, right. you'll probably get a blank look. He said, oh, it means five people have heard of you, but they're the right five people. Oh, that's well put. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Dad, I got to see him receive the Wolf Prize in Mathematics, uh, when he was 89, it's um, conferred in Israel at the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, by the president of Israel, who was then 89 also. That was Shimon Peres. Uh, 
Um, and that was a, that was really a cool experience. All right. So uh, we got to tie this back together. So we've got your friend at the oh, phone yes, company. Yes, yes. Okay. We've got right. the potluck with adults right. learning English and learning to read in English. And, I do and the, the dots are starting to come together for you that like this idea of intelligent tutoring. Sure. You're, you you're might want to take some, cut some of this out. Have you ever read the celebrated jumping frog of Calaveras County? I have not. It's a Mark Twain story. Uh, about somebody who, in the middle of telling one story, interrupts to tell another, never gets back to the original. Anyhow, great story. I will read the story for sure. And, you know, I think a lot of people actually say that um, there's a lot of underappreciated value in people who connect dots that no one else can see. So what's happening is you have the dots. I, I'm here to connect them. So let's. we're, we're at the potluck. We've got the phone company. Yeah. Intelligent tutoring is definitely, like, percolating for you. Tell so, me more about what happened next. Um, I go for a walk with my parents. My mother was an uh, English or journalism major. My father and uh, I asked the fateful question, if you were going to get computers to help people learn something, what would be a useful thing to help them learn? Um, my father, being a mathematician, said math. My mother, uh, having been, uh, I guess she was an English major, but I think she was the editor of her, her college paper, said reading. And at that point, all of a sudden, everything clicked into place. As a graduate student, I'd worked on speech recognition, okay, speech understanding, uh, when I was a, getting my PhD at Carnegie Mellon. Um, and so I got the idea, li computer listen to children read. Uh, right. I had literacy on the brain because of our next door neighbors. Uh, I had speech recognition or speech understanding there because I worked on it. And then, of course, as always, mothers are always right. And your mother <laughs> brought all the dots together for you. I think this may have more to do with fatherhood because I was not only a new father, but the absolutely cliche stereotype of as proud a new father as you can imagine. Um, you know, showing baby pictures to anybody who asked uh, or did not ask. So you're a new father and, and you're deciding, okay, so between your mother, between these people you've met at the potluck, you're like literacy and, and your background, you have the background for it. You know, all the things that you're saying are threads that, that I'm sure a lot of people resonate with, right? My mother has said these things. I was in this moment. I have this experience, but taking it and doing something with it is, is a very different, you know, thinking about it and having ideas and actually doing something are, are very different things. So how did you make that translation? Well, first of all, I don't think it occurred to me not to do it. I don't right. remember. It's completely long ago. Um, and I had gotten stale in, uh, in my career. Um, I had also gotten turned down for tenure, which is not something that I particularly publicized. Uh, and I was, maybe even before that, I was kind of in a rut. So I was looking for something new to do. Um, and that seemed, uh, I had almost messianic fervor for this thing because I, I wanted to redeem myself uh, and I wanted to do something meaningful. And so I really uh, got taken with this idea. Um, in terms of the technology, the time was ripe. There was one other project that I I know of, also at both Baranek and Newman, which is where Jaime Carbonell uh, Sr. Um, worked, and uh, I guess where I interviewed him. Um, and that was about, so 1990, speech recognition was just barely getting to the point where you didn't have to be insane to apply it to oral reading. Before then, it just was not good enough. And it still wasn't normally fast enough, but the task of listening to oral reading of a known text is so constrained that it was feasible to do it in real time. Today, we're used to uh, real-time recognition of speech, uh, very unconstrained source. But back then, computers were hundreds of times slower, if not thousands. Right. Well, and I, I you know, I have some sort of idea of this and that um, my husband used to work at Amazon. And when he did, we got to try out one of the first 
concepts of Alexa, mm-hmm. and it barely understood you at all, right? Like now we we take for granted what what how far speech recognition has come. Um, and for you to have that foresight, I know that was your experience, but still to be able to think, okay, in 1990, you know, not only could speech recognition work to understand what a child is reading, but also, you know, help them read. And so tell me a little bit more about, so, you, so your goal was to help, was it adults or children that you originally started out with, with for Project Listen? Children. Okay. It was always children was where you were started. I, the potluck kind of made me think maybe you did some adult stuff, but it sounds like children. Uh, funny you should mention that. The very shy wife of a Chinese postdoc, who nobody had ever heard uh, utter more than like two or three words of English at once, um, came and tried out the what we then call the reading coach. And all of a sudden, English came pouring out of her. Because- we hear this story in Amira all the time. We hear all the time kids who nobody t- who doesn't t- who don't talk to anyone, won't read in front of anyone. All of a sudden, they get to practice in a safe space, and you find out like they have this whole capacity. This whole they have so much to say. Oh, that's so cool. There is a wonderful book, and I think one of the questions you would ask was, "Is there a book I would recommend?" Um, the media equation: how people treat computers, television, and other media like real people, places, and things. By Cliff Nass and Byron Reeves. Yeah. Uh, Cliff Nass, unfortunately, died uh, barely 50, uh, which is a great loss. But um, they spent decades investigating what they call the computer as social actor hypothesis, which goes something like this. Um, People have exquisitely sensitive social responses that evolved eons before modern technology um, for evolutionarily sort of obvious reasons, which is that if you just really pissed off somebody else, you know, ugh, with, with a big club, uh, that <laughs> would, <for> you. <laughs> you're, much, you're much less likely to pass your genes on to the next generation. Um, so because they're so sensitive, it takes precious little to elicit them. So they did a whole series of experiments where they would, um, recycle and a published experiment from social science literature, replaced one of the participants with a box, like, you know, computer television, um, rerun the same procedure otherwise, replicate the results, uh, publish, rinse, and repeat. Um, and that book is a description of the various experiments. It's laugh out loud funny um, if you ask people whether they would be polite, and the people in this case were Stanford undergraduates who were the, uh, what used to be called subjects, now we would call participants because it's PC. Um, <laughs> uh, would you be polite to a computer? They would say, of course not. All right, so here's the uh, experiment. Um, if I give a lecture and I ask you how it went, Statistically speaking, you were going to give me a much rosier description than if somebody else asks you how my lecture was. Exactly. So what did they do in this experiment? They had uh, some interaction with a, a computer and it was just, you know, type in, I guess, displaying a screen, nothing high tech. Um, but the relevant part of it, unbeknownst to the participants, is at the end of it, it asked them some questions about how it had done. That was one condition of the experiment. And the other condition, the first part was the same, but the second part was I asked by an identical computer on the other side of the room. <laughs> it replicated the politeness effect. Like I said, laugh out loud funny. Wait, wait, so what happened? Were people ruder to the second, like to the computer that didn't do the activity with them? They were. It's not that they were... They weren't ruder to it. They gave a lower evaluation of the first one. They, okay. So they were more critical of the first one. They, okay. I get what you're saying. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay. So they were more critical of the first one when given the opportunity to walk away from it. And so interesting. That's why somebody else. It's so interesting. Well, and you know, so much of what you're saying is also, again, resonates with me. We often have students ask Amira, our AI reading tutor, if they can have a tissue or go to the restroom. Um, so it's, you know, even, even further down that road of understanding like this relationship with computers. 
Okay. So, but we're going to go all the way back now. <laughs> sure. I love it. This has been so already one of the most interesting conversations I've ever had. And you have so much research and ideas in your brain that it's fun to kind of see them all trickle out. Um, but so you have, um, you started with children and I have to ask, like, how did you find children who were willing to read to a robot and parents who were willing to let them okay. in 1990? Um, that's another story. And I live in fear of forgetting things. And everything reminds me of a story. So I'll come back to that. Okay. Um, the relevance of uh, Nass and Reeves' book, The Media Equation, okay. um, is it has to do with the social relationship of people to computers. Okay. The, uh, the child who all of a sudden became unshy when reading to a computer for a mirror or the postdoc's wife who all of a sudden started speaking English, it's because the social relationship is different with an inanimate box or even an animate box. Right. Uh, it's, um, so you don't think of it the way that you would treat, uh, think of uh, somebody, especially if you're a child, uh, you don't think of it the way you would think of um an adult who would be an authority figure. Okay. My favorite example of this um, is at the end of uh, an experiment where children were using the reading tutor. This is some years later. Um, we had uh, 90 some kids uh, use the reading tutor at a school over the course of the school year. Um, and we asked them a bunch of questions. Um, so there were multiple choice or yes, no questions, but with a follow-up of why okay. to get them to articulate that. Um, and one of the questions was, would you rather read with the reading tutor, your teacher? And this one kid, I think it was a girl. I wish I could find the recording said the reading tutor. And why? Because you can't click on your teacher. <laughs> No, I don't know about you. For me, the mental image I get is push your teacher's belly button. Right? Oh, yeah, like a little tiny ruxpin. Yeah, how funny. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so uh, this whole opportunity is what I'm hearing. And, and we see this in a mirror, but it sounds like you saw it even early, like in 1990 of, you know, whether it's because they like clicking their, their robo teacher or their, you know, reading coach or because – it's they're they're shy and nervous. There's this opportunity here for someone to speak and to read to, you know, a, to te technology and, and feel safe or feel different than they would if it was a person. I've never met a child who felt they got enough um, attention. Right. This is a form of safe attention. Right. Something uh, that is not an authority figure. Um, a question I was interested in was how do children perceive the personality of the reading tutor? Because by that time it was the ran our PCs and it, it would be called reading tutor. Uh, and um, a colleague of mine suggested, it, it turned out there's only going to be time to ask three questions. Right. And a colleague uh, of mine in the, the human computer interaction Institute, Sarah, and I'm forgetting her last name, unfortunately suggested um Ask them, if you could ask the reading tutor anything, what would you ask? That turned out to be a marvelous question. This one boy, and uh, this, these interviews took place um, around Thanksgiving-ish, I think, uh, said he would ask the reading tutor what he was going to get for Christmas. Oh, uh, Yeah, it's cute. But also, he was attributing omniscience to this idiot box. <laughs> we talked before about understanding. Right. The reading tutor has zero understanding of the text. Right. That doesn't matter. What matters is for the kid to understand the text. And it has recorded human narrations of the text, very expressive ones, um, by somebody reading, certainly the, the narrator is reading with understanding, but the box doesn't understand at least what. Um, or at least didn't until we're just now starting to use uh, what it now is called AI, uh, some natural language understanding and analysis. Right. 
Right. Um, so, uh, so you've talked about kind of what I would say are like somewhat periphery benefits of, of your tutor, of your reading coach, right? So the periphery benefits of someone who maybe isn't confident or of, a, a, you know, some, some of the like neat things that kids felt or, or experienced or, or thought about the tool. Um, but I, you know, I think what's so valuable and interesting in Amira is um, it, there was also real reading results from using this. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I think the first uh, impressive result we got was um, a within-classroom comparison of the Reading Tutor, uh, some commercial reading software and, that did not listen, and um, I think independent reading practice. I forget that it was 1998. Right. Um, and the outcome measure was uh, gains in reading comprehension. Okay. Um, it is using a standard test used uh, by researchers. I think it was a Woodcock reading mastery test. Okay. Um, and we significantly beat the classroom uh, condition. The, the, sorry, the independent, independent reading. Independent reading, like the, yeah, the reading time by yourself. Uh, yeah. The difference with the commercial software was not significant because uh, the sample was not large enough to to distinguish the difference, but um, that was uh, somewhat miraculous. Um, it's hard to get significant results in any uh, standard measure of gains. Reading develops very slowly. There's tremendous variance right out of the gate within the classroom. You may find a three or four year difference in reading level between the highest and lowest readers. Right. Uh, and um, so that, that was, uh, that was the first result we got on where the outcome was learning. We had experiments before um, where we looked for a, a training wheel effect. Okay. So we had the same kids read, um, with and without the assistance of the reading coach that was the predecessor of the reading tutor. Right. Um, training wheels experiment. We had kids, uh, I'm going to back up. Um, in order to figure out what the, what the reading tutor, a reading tutor should do at that point as a reading coach, uh, we asked a master reading teacher from uh, a, a lab school in Pittsburgh uh, what to do with the kid given that you have a magic box that can listen, but doesn't understand anything. Okay. Uh, and so she gave us uh, some things to do. We had um, somebody who had come to Carnegie Mellon to pursue uh, a, an art and robotics uh, uh, degree, I think. Uh, he was a conceptual artist. Um, he had designed video games. He was very proud of having designed the only one of the top 10 video games that was not violent. Okay. Um, and by the time he, that he realized that he, in fact, uh, did not want to uh, do this the master's program, he had fallen in love with an undergraduate, so he was stuck there for the rest of the time. Yeah. Uh, she had professional speaking experience, so she recorded the first um, uh, supply of uh, recordings of, of, of words. Um, and... I didn't have a position for him, but I cobbled something together. We needed somebody to run field experiments and somebody to implement an interface. So he did both, which was great. It closed the loop. So he took this half page of instructions from the reading expert. And at first, um, I should explain what the, the setup was. There were like two uh, computer terminals, uh, monitors. Um, there were next workstations, which you might not be old enough to have have heard of. Um, they were designed by uh, Steve Jobs. Um, at a point, I think after the first time got kicked out of Apple or something. Anyhow, um, Matt, the, the uh, game designer and experimenter, um, would have text displayed on the screen for the kid to read. Okay. And whenever they needed help, they would push on a, a little button like this 
that he had hardwired to a flashlight that shone in his face. So he could tell uh, when they needed help. It was essential that they not have a line of sight to each other because they, he didn't want to uh, communicate anything that he didn't realize he was communicating. Um, and so then he would give help on whatever the word was that kid was stuck on. And uh, over time, he successively automated himself um, so that by the end of that series of experiments, the only thing he was doing was simulating speech recognizer by clicking on each word of text to indicate whether the child had read it correctly or not. Okay. Um, he had taken the types of help that at first he was giving verbally, um, replaced it with recordings. He had his uh, fiance um, narrate the words. Make the recordings. So, uh, he had very nice, clean recordings of um, of, of the words. Um, and he programmed rules to trigger based on how many words the kid missed and uh, or hesitated on whatever it was, yeah. uh, when to give what types of help. So it could give, it could say a hard word um, or an easy word, or it could also play a fluent narr expressive narration of the sentence. Yeah. Okay. Um, which I think Leanne, his, his fiance uh, had also narrated. Um, that's called the wizard of Oz experiment. So wizard of Oz experiment <clears throat> Um, is when you test an interface before you have built it. Yeah. By having a human experimenter called the wizard controlling it. So the, the user interface is there, but the smarts, the back end, is being done by a human in real time. Okay. Um, so that it was uh, it was a cool experimental setup. Um, the evaluations we were able to do was compare what level of material uh, a kid could read with versus without that help. That, well, that at this point, I think we were already onto a fully automated yeah. uh, thing that was using uh, speech recognition on a separate machine, um, but connected to the, uh, the workstation that had um, that. And that we did uh, carried out in elementary school um, and we showed the kids could read and understand uh, like two or three years. I forget the, the the how many years more advanced they could read and understand with the assistance. Uh, so that's, that's what I call the training wheels experiment. Right. So you can evaluate stuff um, before you have learning effects to measure. Learning effects are much harder to achieve because oh. of the variance among kids. Oh, I know. And, yeah, and, I, I know yeah. all too well. Um, and, and again, I have to go back to the question. I asked. So, so first of all, I totally understand what you're saying. And, and what you were able to show is that with, you know, just a little bit of help, right? A child, and I think this gets back to what you were saying and the difference between independent reading and reading with a coach, right? There's so much more, the experience is just so much more rich for a child because they can persist and they can possibly read significantly higher. But I have to go back as you're explaining this, this experiment with this person that you hired, um, and ask like, where, where did you find kids and parents who are willing to, to do this with you? <laughs> you know? I'll that in one moment, but as I say, I live in yes. for doing stuff. Um, in reading, there are names for different difficulty levels. Yes. Frustration level is defined as where a kid is making more than one mistake per 10 words. Yes. Um, I think, uh, there's instructional and independent and... Yeah, I think independent means they're uh, making mistakes on 2% or less of the words and instructional, they're reading 95% correctly. Uh -huh. um, the point there is with just a little bit of assistance, you can enable kids to read material that's much more advanced yeah. and interesting. Um it's not a substitute for phonics, by the way. Uh, or Obviously not. Or, or, or a substitute for a teacher, right? This is an additional um, opportunity for a student to, to read with support. Um, I, I understand all of that. Our approach was to get the people to, the teacher to do what teachers do best and the computer to do what the computer can do more availably 
And so in some cases, computers have better graphics than teachers could draw, right? Yeah. Um, or at least faster. Right. Uh, so where did we get kids? <clears throat> um, that was a challenge. One of the things that helped us was there was an outreach program um, on campus as a <clears throat> kind of social service thing that was bringing kids to campus. Um, we also, when we just needed it initially, uh, we put out... Um, so I need to tell you about Raj Reddy. Uh, Raj was an early champion of our work. He was... Uh, he won many, the top awards in computer science. President Mitterrand of France flew to Pittsburgh to personally award him wow. the medal of whatever the highest honor a non-citizen in France can uh, earn for just one of his many uh, contributions. Um, and so he asked us to make a, a film of the uh, reading tour. So we're, uh, and we uh, put out sort of a panic call for somebody who could bring the kit. Um, Fuzzy Malden, Fuzzy was his uh, nickname, Michael Malden, uh, who invented Lycos, <clears throat> which was a, an early set, uh, search engine. Um, the uh, university built, the building my office was in, with the proceeds from the sale of that stock. Um, he bought his five-year-old kid. Okay. Uh, I forget the kid's name, but we needed an example of a kid making a reading mistake. And this kid was only five, but he read like a fifth grader. <clears throat> um, and we were giving him harder and harder stuff to try to elicit a mistake. Finally, he was reading a story about John Paul Jones, and their sentence was, um, he became used to the free and democratic ways of the new country. And the kid uh, read, he became used to the free and dramatic ways of the new country. <laughs> It's a pretty intelligent mistake to make. Right, yeah. exactly. It's a white part of speech. It's very similar. So that that was the uh, the reading mistake in that in that little clip. Um, so so it sounds like you found other people on campus. You found some opportunities for for kids. But that's very labor intensive because right. yes, somebody has to babysit the kids who aren't reading. Yes, at any given time. So once we could get out to schools, uh, that was a much that's where the kids are. Yes. Um, that's a much more copious supply. Um, getting into schools to do research was not easy then. There was somebody whose job was to facilitate uh, research in schools, which turned out, that's when I learned that facilitate is a euphemism for prevent. <laughs> um, so, uh but th that's how we eventually got into schools, and that's a much easier place and also sort of more authentic because uh, if kids can use the software, it's not going to be in a university lab. Yeah. It's going to be in a place where there are more kids. It's noisy. It's busy. It's a classroom. Yep, exactly. And so you got into schools, and what was that experience like? <sighs> I learned not to try to predict what a kid is going to do. <laughs> I have twins. I have three-year-old twins. I've, I learned that at least once an hour, but yes. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I spent years working in the schools and doing a field testing, uh, the reading tutor. Um, so it's kind of, and also that was decades ago. So for both reasons, it's sort of impossible to compress. Um, but uh, however, it's also impossible not to think of stories that it reminds me of. So I'll just tell you the first that popped in the head. This has to do with education technology, really. Um, the first longitudinal test of the reading tutor uh was in a small office next to the gym and a title two teacher was assigned by the principal to sit behind the kid while they used it. Um, and uh, it crashed remarkably uh, infrequently. Um, 
and so it uh, it was. I think we had eight kids. The principal cleverly asked the four um, third grade teachers to pick the two lowest readers from each class. Smart. So this was a pretty uh, daunting test. Um, these were kids who were, I think, on average, two years below grade level in reading. Um, and as uh, you know, I can tell from uh, some good idea of, of what you know about reading. If a kid gets to fourth grade and they haven't gotten it, their outlook is very bleak yes. if they're that far below grade level. Um, so for a kid to even make a year's progress in a year's time would be a big improvement for these kids. Right. Um, if I remember the statistic correctly, the eight kids averaged um, – these are going to be approximate numbers. I think in the eight or nine months of the study, um, they averaged three times that amount in, in reading improvement. Oh, my gosh. You, like, changed their lives. Uh, I guess we'd like to think so. <laughs> I, um, I, I'll tell you, as someone who has taught third and fourth grade, to have that growth at that moment is, is life-changing. It's game-changing. That's incredible. That's so and, and so incredible for that principal. I just want to point out, you know, like, for them to have the foresight of, like, let's pick the kids who need it most in the spot they need it most. I'm so glad you shared that. And, and it's so lovely to have this conversation because we're talking about the 90s and, and we only have a little bit of time left. So I, and I would be remiss right. if I didn't ask you a little bit about this moment we are in now because we've talked about, you know, your starting point with AI and education is the 70s. And then the study, you know, in the 90s. And now we, here we are, it's 2023. And, you know, there's a panic around AI and education. And I'm curious what you think of that. I'm sure you're reading all the things in the New York Times and, and all the all the things that are kind of coming out. And, and what is your feeling about, you're, is the panic fair? Sure. <clears throat> Sorry, you're sure, but you're wrong. <laughs> I got that in the New York Times. But, um, uh, I'll tell you what my sense of, of it is. Um, the meaning of AI changed okay. a year or two ago. Um, now when people say AI... What they mean without necessarily realizing it is um, generative AI. Yeah. Um, powered by what's called large language models. Um, we use language models in, in the reading tutor, but they were orders of magnitude smaller. Yeah. Um, it's spooky what sort of uh, intelligence is emergent. Uh, in the behavior of these things. Um, I used to be fond of saying that one contribution of artificial intelligence has been to um, isolate intelligence in smaller quantities than ever before achieved. <laughs> um, even the bacterium has to like survive and, yeah. and evolve, and computer programs don't have that requirement. Um The key ingredient in what they can do is deep representations of stuff. So if you train on gazillions of words of text, um, underlying that text is a lot of knowledge. Right. Um, and that knowledge kind of comes out when you uh, apply it, but it's in a form that humans... Uh, it's zillions of little numbers of weights right. uh, in a neural network or something like that. Completely opaque. Um, so it's a, that's a very new thing and surprising to the people who are doing it. Um, <clears throat> lawyers are uh, afraid of being, well, I don't know if they're afraid of being replaced by computers. Law schools are very worried about um, generative AI being used uh, to pass things. Apparently, uh, a computer program already passed the bar exam someplace. I saw that in the New York Times, yeah. Uh, our um, daughter, who is a just completed her first year of law school, reported <clears throat> that um, they used to have um, open book exams. Mm -hmm. And 
but without internet access. So they couldn't Google stuff. Um, and now they crack down so that they can't use generative AI either. Yeah. Um, maybe they can't, I forget exactly what the restriction was, but concrete example of law school being paranoid or perhaps rationally so of uh, the power of the, the technology. Okay, so let me ask you this question, and then I'm, and then we've got to move to our rapid fire questions because we're so we're low on time. But this has been so fun to listen to all your old studies and you know kind of things. But you're you're you mentioned you were a p- proud father. You're yeah. now a proud grandfather. Oh, very. Um, and so what are you telling your daughter who's in law school or you know your family members around around this feeling around AI and and what they should be choosing for their children or how they should feel about it? Like how what's your communication knowing what you know from the 1970s and 1990s and then you know the changes in the last few years it's very kind of you to ask but they haven't ah. <laughs> uh, don't that i do they ask your maybe you know maybe they ask mother because as we learned earlier you know mother knows best <laughs> well my wife is also a nerd okay uh, she's a um it architect at, uh worked for google um and has uh in fact, her work now involves some stuff about generative AI because uh, it's it's the hot new thing, but it is is very powerful. Um, so uh, I think our conversations are a whole lot more about how cute their children, that is to say, our grandchildren are. Okay. All right. So safe answer right there. All right. I've got a, just a few quick questions. Okay. Um, okay. So the first one is, a piece of technology that you find really exciting. What are you excited about? Well, I have to decide what piece of bicycle technology I especially enjoy. Um, I I think this question is going to be a, a dud for your purposes. That's okay. Go for it anyways. I would love something different. It's not a cycle computer, but there's nothing particularly innovative about it. It's just I was able to get one very cheap. <laughs> and I haven't put it on the uh, <clears throat> on the bicycle yet. Very uh, cool. What's cool about bicycles is bicycling. Uh, I bicycled across the United States in 1976. One of the best things I ever did. I am just squeezing it in. It has nothing to do with anything else. Just not through the brag. I think that there are going to be a lot of moments that people look back and listen to this and think, you know, I'm, I'm glad I caught that nugget. I don't know why it's here, but I'm glad this magical nugget is here. Okay. So if he's technology you're excited about, um, one book that you think everyone should read, I think you kind of mentioned it earlier, but just in case, let's say it again for anyone listening at the end. The Media Equation, How People Treat Computers, Television, and Other Media Like Real People, Places, and Things by uh, Nass and Reeves. I'm adding it to my list. I haven't read it. I can't wait. I hope it is as funny as you say it is. Okay. And then, you know, for me, I think what will really resonate with people and what resonated with me about your story is it was a moment that was kind of a low that you took and like lit a fire, right? Um, you, you didn't get tenure and things like that. And, and I think a lot of people hope to do that in life. Like, I think we all kind of want to be the underdog who comes out on you know top and does something great and courageous and, and something that helps other people. And so my question to you would be, for people who, who want to be able to do that, what would be your best piece of advice? Be lucky. <laughs> that is not luck. That is not luck. You're, you're underestimating that. I think that to be in that moment and decide to find something great to do for others is special. Don't, don't undervalue what you did. Is, that, is there anything else? Just be lucky? Thinking. Um, I don't understand why you haven't uh, already read the media equation because it's been at least half an hour since I recommended it to you. <laughs> because this conversation is so great, but it is going to definitely be on my list to order for sure. There are many times when I felt that there was help from someplace um, because there are many things that, that just helped. Um yeah. One thing I'm very grateful for, uh, so after spending 25 years getting computers to listen to children read, um, I uh, heard about this Global Learning X Prize, $15 million competition to address the shortage of teachers in developing countries by developing an open source Android tablet app. Like, here's... Here's uh, an Android tablet. 
right. but without the keyboard. Um, the kids could use and require basic literacy and numeracy without requiring adult assistance um, in Swahili. Actually, it was Swahili in English, but um, and it was a $15 million competition. I heard about it. I thought, I can't not Applause. sign up for this because I'll never know. Um, 198 teams from 40 countries registered. Um, it got winnowed down to five finalists who each won a million dollars and competed for the grand prize of 10 million of Elon Musk's money, by the way, um, to achieve the highest total learning gains in a massive controlled study, uh, 15 months from pretest to post-test with um, about 2,000 kids. Wow. In 28 villages in Tanzania. Remote villages chosen to have very little access to schools. Um, my wife and I saved millions of dollars in our income taxes by not winning the grand prize. <laughs> there's, the, there's the bright side. But uh, it, it, and actually, no one team won uh, all $10 million. There's a tie. So two of them split, uh, and each won $5 million. How much wow. does $5 million really buy anymore? Um but in the process, I got hooked on working with bright, dedicated, idealistic students, some from Carnegie Mellon, some from other American universities, some from universities around the world, um, especially China and India, uh, and whom I continue to work with today. Uh, I don't have funding anymore, and so it's all volunteer. So the progress is much, is much slower than when we had funding. Um, but that uh, that's what really excites me, I think, as opposed to gadgets. Yeah. It's getting to get to work with these, collaborate with these people who are as excited as you are and thinking about these ideas. I really love that we got to both start this interv interview and end this interview with a story where it didn't quite work out the way you planned. You didn't get exactly what you thought you wanted. And instead, you got something um that maybe, you know, changed you even more and, and guided you in a different way. So I, I'm glad that that was the way this got to go. So thank you so much for your time today. This I got this great shirt out of it. Yeah, show us the sweatshirt. We love the sweatshirt, RoboTutor. Uh, made by my uh, daughter, the, the law student. Oh, it's a great sweatshirt. Well, thank you so much again. This has been really great. Who just, who just made law review. Wow, congratulations. So, I love it. No matter what I ask about you and about all of your great things, you talk about other people. It really makes me... Hey, I'm a grandfather. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, this is great. It was really nice to talk to you and have a great rest of your day, okay? Thanks, you too. Thanks for joining us on the More Than a Test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week and thanks for joining.